across uh, the Roman Empire and across the world. And people are trying to figure out, okay, well, how do we understand Jesus? How do we understand this faith in God? And how do we understand uh, this spirit? So last week, Pentecost Sunday, about the spirit descending on the apostles in the book of Acts. Uh, Jesus, in the farewell discourses, as we've talked over the last few weeks, is talking about this. Um, it's sometimes translated as the advocate or the friend. Jesus is talking about, he's like, there's, there's the advocate's going to come when I'm gone. We'll make, you know, uh, things known to you that I cannot make. He's very mysterious about this in, in, the, in the Gospel of John, right? Uh, so, so that's kind of the, what we're coming off of with talking about the Spirit. So the early Christians are wrestling with this idea. Okay, how do we understand the Spirit, Jesus, God the, the Father, uh, Yahweh? How do we understand these three as divine? So um, one of the first two um, to write and talk about the Trinity was a guy named uh, Ignatius of Antioch around... Uh, the year 110 uh, BCE, he, um, he writes uh, about obedience to Christ, to the Father, and to the Spirit. So early 2nd century, this idea of the Trinity is, is forming. Obviously, we don't have the word Trinity in the Bible. The Bible makes no explicit uh, reference of the Trinity. We just have these ideas of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Um, and then we know that the first real defense of the doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity, I know this history is thrilling. I can see it on your face. All right, well, we're going to wrap up the history here really quickly. But just so that we have some kind of context, um, I think it's always important that um, we feel kind of attached to our tradition, to our faith. So sometimes a little history might be good, even if it's not that exciting. Uh, so Tertullian, this guy, Tertullian, does a, a defense of the Trinity. Uh, he's a Christian writer in uh, the 3rd century, around the, the beginning of the 3rd century, and he defines the Trinity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in, uh, in a, an essay where he's, he's defending uh, the Trinity. But in the early 3rd century, this is still, um, from my understanding, a minority position. Bob, is that, is that true? It's still, in the 3rd century, a minority position. Uh, uh, position within the Christian faith that the Trinity as we know it, uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three separate persons, um, not the majority Christian uh, perspective, three centuries into the faith. So that's kind of how this develops. And then we have uh, the Council of Nicaea, 325. We have the Council, uh, the first Council at Constantinople in 381. In, in Nicaea, there was, not a, uh, there was not a very clear definition of the doctrine of the Trinity in the Council of Nicaea in 325, but by the time you get to 381, um, it, it's a little bit more clearly communicated, and I'll just read uh, this little bit so that we kind of have an idea. So 381, into the 4th century, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all things visible and invisible, in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, the very God, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, and in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, who with the Father and the Son, together is worshiped and glorified, who uh, spoke by the prophets. <sighs> 
Uh, no, this is like, this is, this is it. This is our, this is our tradition, right? It's, a, it's really wordy, but you can, see, uh, you can see the church in the tradition trying to work these things out, right? Trying to figure out, okay, Jesus Christ, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all world, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance of the Father. So they're philosophically trying to make sense of something uh, that is really beyond language. And obviously this is uh, an English translation. And so there's even you know, parts of uh, translation that you know, don't even uh, really grasp the full idea because we're like, okay, it's one substance, all that kind of stuff. Um, so by the end of the fourth century, um, some, some people called the, the Cappadocian Fathers, um, Gregory of Nyssa uh, being really influential, um, they continue to develop the doctrine of the Trinity. And that doctrine, by the end of the fourth century, is pretty solidified as the majority position and still holds today as um, really the base or the foundation of the Christian understanding of the Trinity. So after the Cappadocian Fathers, um, that becomes um, the, the general tradition of the Trinity. Uh, the Trinity is, is fascinating in many ways. Um, it's obviously a mystery. Um, when I talk about the Trinity, I, I tend to just say the mystery of the Trinity um, because we just know that throughout Christian history, it's we, it's been so difficult to define. Art has been a really uh, an interesting way. If you look at art through, I have a couple of uh, f- photos here. So this is uh, 1425. This is one of the most uh, famous depictions of uh, the Trinity here. Maybe you've seen that. I think uh, Richard Rohr's uh, book cover on the Trinity, The Divine Dance, uses, uses a version of, of that artwork. And then uh, another one that I think is really pretty interesting is, a, is a Span- one by a Spanish artist in 1570. If you can see that, there's, uh, there's Christ with three faces. So there's three faces there trying to, uh, trying to understand the idea of uh, the Trinity through the person of Christ. And then there's this really famous, uh, you may have seen this before. I think it's, I don't know if it's in Latin there. I can't really see. What is that? Yeah. Um, where it's like the Father is not, the Spirit is not, the Son is not, and then is to the middle with God. So sometimes that is like taken. And I don't know if that's the original, um, the first depiction in that way, but I've also seen that, that triangle, trying to understand, okay, the Father is not, the Son is not, the Holy Spirit is not, but they all are God. It's it's a... Uh, impossible, but art does a good job of uh, bringing us into the mystery of what this is, right? I mean, that's what all good art does, is try to depict the mystery of what is inexplicable with, with words. So despite what you may or may not think about the Trinity walking in here, maybe you haven't really thought about it all that much, um, we can say that the, the doctrine of the Trinity, the mystery of the Trinity, Trinity has been uh, contemplated, experienced, and debated for like, roughly, you know, for almost 2,000 years, right? Even before there was the um, definitive language on the Trinity. Uh, modern Christianity, you know, usually does not 
focus on the Trinity. Even in Christianity today, rarely do I hear someone uh, talk about the Trinity. Usually um, the focus is on Jesus or or one of the elements, right? I think the uh, Pentecostal or charismatic movement has kind of hijacked the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is most important for Pentecostal or charismatic churches um, based on, you know, a hierarchy, a hierarchy of spiritual development, right? So if you're closer you are to the Spirit, then you'll have more, like, spiritual gifts and, and that sort of thing. Uh, our fundamentalist friends, they tend to focus a lot on the Father being, you know, kind of that... Um, angry old guy with a beard in the sky, you know, ready to smite you for bad church attendance, that kind of thing. And then our uh, lovely uh, evangelical friends really have done a fabulous job of uh, taking Jesus as my boyfriend kind of theology, right? It's all about uh, Jesus and the relationship to, to Jesus as sort of lover and savior kind of guy. Um, so how do we as Christians today that are trying to rethink this faith, how do we reclaim um, an, an experience of the Trinity? How do we kind of understand this, or even if we don't understand it, uh, really live into the experience of the mystery of the Trinity? Uh, Richard Rohr says, uh, he often says, how you do one thing is how you do everything, right? How you do one thing is how you do everything. I think this might be helpful um, and provide a little bit of guidance for our experience of the Trinity. Since the Trinity can't be logically understood, um, it's very difficult to, um, to explain it with words, then every analogy that's used, uh, every metaphor, inevitably, inevitably falls short. And oftentimes, I think it does more to confuse matters um, than lead us into to lives based in love, right? We just kind of debate the thing and say what metaphor we most identify with, but um, I'm not really sure that those kinds of things, I've never been much into apologetics for this reason. I mean, apologetics can be great. There's a lot of really smart people that engage in uh, apologetics as, um, you know, arguments for defending the faith, right? Um, And a lot of times the Trinity falls into, you know, apologetic arguments. It's like, okay, I can do a better explanation than so-and-so, or the other person doesn't explain the Trinity right. So really, does that kind of thinking lead us into lives of love? So if we're thinking about the Trinity as love, experience, uh, love, gift, experience, how might we take the how you do one thing is how you do everything into our understanding of the Trinity? I think the Trinity is fundamentally the expression of love. Um, the Trinity Sunday slide, uh, I don't know if Lauren, if you could click the, that first Trinity Sunday slide um, at the top. It, it says, uh, it's like three cups um, pouring into one another. But Trinity is fundamentally the expression of love. I love this, this piece of art where each, each person of the Trinity is pouring into the other cup. So this week, I mentioned that I performed the wedding ceremony for my brother. Um, And it's amazing to see uh, two people fall in love. And it's amazing to see two people uh, commit and promise their lives to each other in love, right? No? Okay. Yes, yes. We can be we can be a little charismatic today. Yes, Amen. 
Um, you know, it's, it's the purest expression uh, of love, to, to promise your, yourself to a life with another person, this giving and receiving of love. Um, when two people get married, I don't know if you've uh, been at a wedding and, and thought this or at your own wedding thought this, but there's a sense that anything is possible, right? That, that the, the future is wide open because of this expression of love that two people have for each other. I mean, the future just seems like the biggest expanse possible. You know, this love can go anywhere. It makes us feel alive. It's this feeling of freedom and vulnerability, and it's almost as, you know, simultaneously as individuals, um, you feel more personally alive than ever, but you also disappear into something greater than just yourself. And this doesn't necessarily just have to apply to marriage. Um, Jesus was never married, and yet we probably can all agree that he was the pure embodiment and incarnation of this kind of love purely human, but yet dissolves into everything that is, all life greater than him. This expression of love to the least of these, to those that weren't loved in his time. He is purely him, but also like dissipates into the, to the everything of life and his surroundings. This is why Jesus is so, is so fascinating and compelling, because he's so prophetic and is such a dynamic person, but at the same time, his love dissolves into everyone and everything around him in a way that um, is just unlike anything we've ever really seen, and we don't experience in real life, and that's why we recognize like, Jesus is the pure embodiment of divine love. In Jesus, you know, the ego disappears and Jesus merges with all things in relationship, communion, love. Jesus self-described as meek. And he says in Matthew, If God gives such attention to the appearance of wildflowers, most of which are never even seen, don't you think he'll attend to you, take pride in you, do his best for you? What I'm trying to do here is get you to relax, to not be preoccupied with getting so that you can respond to God's giving. That is a Trinitarian, all is one understanding of life. He is so merged in the act and experience of love that he recognizes the wildflowers. How much are these wildflowers loved that are never even seen? Uh, that's the same kind of love and flow of love that we see in the Trinity. It's always giving and receiving. So he says, don't be preoccupied with getting, respond to giving. And this picture of, uh, of the Trinity is um, always just giving and receiving, giving and receiving. There is no claiming, there is no getting, it's just gift and receiving, giving and receiving. Jesus is in love with all of nature, all of creation, and all people. So Trinity is giving and receiving. If how we do one thing is how we do everything, 
then we have to see love is at the very heart of this giving and receiving, that same kind of giving and receiving that we recognize uh, when two people get married, that the flow of love between them is always giving and receiving. In one of my favorite movies, The Fountain, um, Rachel Weiss's character, uh, she understands this deeply even as she faces her terminal diagnosis. And she understands and will communicate throughout the movie that her life needs to be given, that she needs to die in order for real life, life as um, life in its essence, to continue on. She sees her death as giving life so that life can continue. Um, giving and receiving, giving and receiving as the pattern of all life. I think in Christian community, church, um, this right here, the relationships we have with each other, um, can be seen in this way, or maybe should be seen in this way. Uh, we have to be in tune with one another. We have to love each other um, so that we can be givers and receivers in community together, that we know and understand each other's needs um, so intimately that the flow of love in a, in a church or a Christian community is just this giving and receiving, giving and receiving. And if we think about the Trinity as um, sort of the essence of all things, the essence of life, that life at its very core is this flow of love, this flow of giving and receiving, that the Christian expression in, in real life of that would, be, would mirror that. It would be the same. We know each other so well that it's just giving and receiving. Sometimes uh, we have a lot more to give, and then sometimes we're empty and we need to receive a lot, depending on um, what's going on in the community, depending on what season of life we're in. Uh, this love is what creates Christian community. We talked about it for several weeks now, but there are a lot of kind of communities, right? There are a lot of organizations you can be a part of. Uh, but at the core, what if we thought of church as a place for this kind of love, for just perpetual giving and receiving, that what stands in the middle of all this is that core flow of love, giving and receiving. I'm saying giving and receiving a lot. I don't know. So church functions, yes, as an institution. It's a building. It's here all the time. Uh, but without that flow of love, and maybe many of us have been a part of churches or other communities, where it just seems like the thing is functioning, right? Like, it's just a thing. People come to it. People sit down. And it just doesn't feel like love, right? We, we all know what that feels like. We all know what love looks like. And an easy way to say that is giving, receiving, right? That this building means really not much without all of us participating in that kind of love with each other, that open-handed giving and receiving. The Trinity must be, therefore, experienced. Ian Lamott said, I didn't need to understand the hypostatic union unity of the Trinity. I just needed to turn my life over to whoever came up with redwood trees. 
we experience God through the mystery of the Trinity. This way, if God, if God in this way is experience, the experience, the very experience of love, um, uh, I was reading uh, one of my favorite books, uh, The Prophet by Khalil Gibran this week, and he says, um, think not that um, God is in your heart, but that you are in the very heart of God, right? If God is the flow, the experience of this kind of love, then we don't have to defend God or believe in God like we do a political candidate or something that we're, um, you know, needing to defend. You know, I believe in this kind of God, right? Um, we talk about all the time here that God, any idea that we have of God always falls short of God. So anything we say about God is less than God. So the Trinity the mystery, the experience of love uh, allows for the flow of love to continue because it's not something that we have to like stand by, right? We don't have to say, this is my God, blah, 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 and this is what I believe. No, it just is this flow of love. It is the experience that we have in true community of giving and receiving, giving and receiving. We participate in a community where our love is felt and we feel the love of others. It's a way more compelling understanding of God than just one that we have that is just stagnant here or up in the heavens somewhere, and um, we just have to like have the right thoughts about that kind of God, have the doctrinal points set, and you know then we go about our lives. No, it forces us to participate in the true act of love, which is beyond our yesterday's concept of what we were capable or who we were capable of loving. So in this, I'll wait. That's great. Um, so in this, in this way, in this, in this sort of um, experience of the Trinity, we don't have to, we don't have to engage in in debate. Like we don't we don't have to engage in knowing the right things, reading the right books, but we're forced to actually uh, live a life of love, to step into the flow of love that calls to uh, that calls us to to give. Um, this is often considered, you know, sacrificial, right? Sacrificial love. Um, and Jesus as um, the epitome in the ideal of the, the sacrificial servant. Um, and Jürgen Moltmann, uh, you know, one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, you know, says something like this about um, sacrifice in the Trinity. Uh, the place of the doctrine of the, of the Trinity is not thinking thought, but it is the very cross of Jesus. This protects the faith from both monotheism and atheism because it keeps believers at the cross. The content of the doctrine of the Trinity is the real cross of Christ himself. The form of the crucified Christ is the Trinity. In that case, what is salvation? Only if all disaster, forsakenness by God, absolute death, the infinite curse of damnation, sinking into nothingness is in God himself. Is the community with this God is eternal salvation, infinite joy, indestructible election, and divine life. 
Here there is no correct doctrine or understanding of God because there is no hierarchy in God, only sacrificial love. Uh, Richard Rohr says this about, um, about hierarchy in regards to the Trinity. Spiritual power is more circular or spiral, not hierarchical. It's here within us. It is shared and shareable. It is already entirely for us and grounded within us. God's spirit is planted within us and is operating as us. Trinity shows that God's power is not any kind of domination, threat, or coercion. If the Father does not dominate the Son, and the Son does not dominate the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit does not dominate the Father or the Son, then that means there's no domination in God. All divine power is shared power and letting go of autonomous power. This this God is not seeking control as we do, but handing power to the other, handing power over to the other. This is divine, giving and receiving, a circle of love, always in motion. Uh, we, all, we are all aware that our society is preoccupied with storing up, saving, preparing, acquiring, purchasing, maintaining power, and maintaining control. And yet, this flow of divine love that we see in the Trinity is all giving and receiving. No control, no domination, no power, just gift, just gift. How different would Christian history have been if we understood, or just history, right? Christianity has dominated most of history and, uh, you know, through colonialism or any number of uh, atrocities uh, through manifest destiny uh, done in the name of Christ, in the name of God, um, because we've, it's really hard to understand this idea of divine flow, that there is no domination in God, that it's just love. It's just love. And the way we experience that is by participating in that. It's like so simple, but incredibly difficult to do. So however we work out the Trinity in our minds, I assume that it's not that important. How we live into this divine mystery um, that's expressed by our love is the important part and is the hard part, unfortunately. Um, we probably would rather debate it than, than try to live it. Um, Jesus told uh, you know, the rich young man If you want to be perfect, go sell all of your possessions and give it to the poor. You have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. What does he do? He goes off sad. He's like, goes off in sorrow. Um, And then Jesus, at another another point in, in Matthew, says, You've been taught to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you this, love your enemies and pray for those torment you and persecute you. It's this divine flow of love that is beyond uh, our normal participation in life, our day-to-day worries, stress, anxiety, maintain control, do the thing, get the job, buy the stuff. Um, 
and yet we're called into this mystery of the Trinity, this mystery of faith, to operate out of giving and receiving. That, yeah, we're all going to like live our lives and buy houses and buy cars and you know have fun, um, but at the very core of who we are and what we live out of and how we live together in community is love. And that love is expressed uh, in this way, this giving and receiving. And I think that's a helpful reminder for us to, if God is something like this, something like this mystery of love, that it's God is actually a relationship, this flow of love, then how do we participate in that as well? So our text for today... <laughs> Our text for today is Romans 5, 1 through 5. And I'm going to read in the, in the voice translation this morning, which is up on the screen. Since we have been acquitted and made right through faith, we are able to experience true and lasting peace with God through our Lord Jesus, the Anointed One, the Liberating King. Jesus leads us into a place of radical grace, where we are able to celebrate the hope of experiencing God's glory. And that's not all. We also celebrate in seasons of suffering because we know that when we suffer, we develop endurance, which shapes our characters. When our characters are refined, we learn what it means to hope and anticipate God's goodness. And hope will never fail to satisfy our deepest need because the Holy Spirit that was given to us has flooded our hearts God's love. I really like the ending of verse 5. You can see how this text was chosen for Trinity Sunday by the wise lectionary selectors, whoever they were. That we have God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit in this text, and that the Holy Spirit has been given to us, right? Given to us. And has flooded our hearts with God's love. So may we experience the mystery of the Trinity as love. May we experience the mystery of the Trinity in giving. May we experience the mystery of the Trinity in receiving. And may we celebrate life here and now that is a result of this love.